inhabitants of Peach Trees. This is Judge Dredd. In case you people have forgotten, this block operates under the same rules as the rest of the city. Mama is not the law. I am the law. and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapiro and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. The shielded hangar opens and the ship taxis out onto the launch strip. It's night and there are so many stars up there. Gradually, the cruiser gains speed. The nose lifts as I prepare to tear free of Moab's gravity. It feels like a web straining against me, growing taut, finally snapping strand by strand. And then I'm out. Just out. Wow, My Little Pony sure is different nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> what was that from again? The Ballad of Halo Jones. Ah, yes. The old classics. Anyway, this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaport. Go to seaport.org to get the latest in comic books, news, reviews, and critique. Uh, buy their books, read their articles, and watch their movies. And remember that Seaport is also on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. Um, now, this is episode 71, right? It certainly is. And why? While... It's also technically, if you want to get into the renumbering, Tom, what's <laughs> happening here is that we are issue 71, but we are also part one of five, of a five-issue mini that is technically canon, mm. but will not be rebooted at the end. Yeah, um, what happened is, after the latest episode, me and Sean sort of took stoke of the whole smorgasbord situation. We've decided that after three years now, um, maybe it's time to try something else. So, this is the countdown to the end of the smorgasbord. Uh, the next five episodes will be our last episodes. We're going to end the year with the annual Smorgies Award, and it's going to be the last episode ever. Mm-hmm. And we've decided since we're finishing up, let's just do, instead of the regular type episode of news, then reviews, then shout at Marvel, which seems to be... <laughs> that seems to be what's going on. No, actually, it's news, shout at Marvel, shout at Marvel some more, reviews, shout at Marvel, well... shout at Marvel, reviews... I think that's part of why we're sort of winding down the podcast. The industry, as it currently stands, seems to be locked in a very, on the one hand, stable pattern, but on the other hand, the pattern that's not legitimately interesting. Like, I've noticed that for the past couple of previews, we do just tend to skip DC and Marvel, and that's a huge chunk of monthly comics that we don't pay attention to because we find it horrifically boring. And I feel like if you get to that point... It's all right to let go. So what we're going to do every one of those last five episodes is going to be a subject. We've chosen a subject. We're going to talk about it at length. And we're going to start with a subject that is uh, near and dear to both of our hearts. Indeed. We're going to talk 2000 AD. Yes. Britain's greatest and one of the gal- The galaxy comics. greatest. The Sean. galaxy's greatest comic. Shame. Tharg <laughs> is knocking at our door right now. Oh, Tharg. Fire, fire and fury, Sean. It's not but he, 
It's not just but, the US president, it's also the Meg's president. <laughs> well, Tharg knows that we're loyal Earthlets, of course. So, so yeah, what I was going to suggest was, since we're spending this episode talking about the past, present, and future of 2018... One of the things that seemed interesting to me to sort of kick us off would be to ask, you know, how did we get started? Because let's not forget, this is a series that, unlike the American model, has never been rebooted, has never been uh, revamped in terms of everything that came before doesn't matter anymore, and now it's a new day and a new age. For the most part, 2018 has been largely consistent since its launch in 1970-something or other. 77. 19- 77, which was, when you think about it, like a couple of years before the X-Men reboot. That was during the time when Marvel was still sort of... hmm. So we have here this anthology that defined itself as being, you know, a British science fiction uh, anthology from the very beginning. And I think even beforehand you had Star-Lord and Tornado and sort of those other books that came together into this uh, magazine. And it has been running for... 40 years now. Yeah, 40 years, nonstop. Almost died several times, but always came back from the brink. Yeah. And it's really interesting when you look at it. We have had like individual reviews of 2080 trades, but I think there is something interesting in sort of their overall bibliography and the stories that emerged from it, some of which have been iconic and remembered over decades. And, and some, some of, of which, which has been Space Babes 2000. Space Babes, Player One. But also, I think there have been maybe even more so than, than American comics per se. I think that also 2000 AD has had a lot of lost gems that people have never really heard about. And I happen to have some of them. And I figured, let's educate people. Okay. Uh, you want to start with my first prog, I believe? Yes. Or your, your first 2018 in general. What is why and what? So do you want to go first? No, no, you go first. You go first okay. because you started well so, before me. Did I? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Well, so here's the thing. What happened with me was, and I really doubt that this is going to be an unusual story. I think if you ask most people who still read 2018 now, like their current fan base, they might say something along the same lines, which is that I got to 2018 through Alan Moore. What had happened was that I had read Watchmen for the first time. I was 14, 15, somewhere around those lines. And I'm like, okay, this guy, Alan Moore, clearly knows what he's doing. I want to read more of his stuff. Now, obviously, at the time, Moore was at DC. He was doing Swamp Thing. He was, you know, putting out all of this famous work. But I also noticed that there were certain stories that he had written for 2000 AD. Uh, The three main books that were brought to my attention at the time were The Ballad of Halo Jones, Skiz, and Future Shocks. They had a special Future Shocks volume that was just dedicated to Alan Moore's stories. And we're talking what time period? uh, This would have been early 2000s for me. Okay. So that was really the beginning. And Skiz was the first one I read. And Skiz was okay. It was like E.T. but less schmaltzy. Like if you take the plot of E.T., subtract everything from it that is a trope 
of Steven Spielberg and put Alan Moore's sensibilities into that same plot, you get skiz. And that was maybe not the best story to start with with him. Because it's okay. You know, skiz is very sympathetic. Alan Moore writes it very well. But it's not really an Alan Moore story. The next one was The Ballad of Halo Jones. And that one knocked my socks off. Uh, for those of you who don't know, The Ballad of Halo Jones was a an ongoing series that Alan Moore was writing. I believe the artist was... Ian Gibson. Yeah. And the way that uh, that the edition that I had began with an introduction from Moore, where he was talking about how in the early 80s and particularly more prevalent towards the late 80s, you did start having a lot of female heroes in uh, fiction, but that were usually written as what he called masculine. So you had, like, he's referring specifically to Ellen Ripley, to Sarah Connor from The Terminator, the second one, obviously. And he wanted to tell a kind of story, a particular kind of story, with a heroine who was not that, who was not a Marine, who was not a natural fighter, just a run-of-the-mill teenager whose only real desire is to escape where she is. And of course, Halo's curse, as it was, is that even when the place that she's at changes, that desire to leave always follows her. So she can never really escape, but she tries to. And it's just this really, really interesting trilogy where he takes her from... uh, the, The first act is set in this future version of New York, which is this giant hoop which is essentially a prison. Like, there's no way for her to escape it, and she is determined to to leave Earth behind and to move on. And when she does, she spends a year as a, a, a waitress on this ship and has all kinds of weird adventures. And in the third book, she joins the military, and it gets... It gets dark in the early more sort of way, where he manages to explore aspects of the human condition and aspects of warfare and the way that war affects people, specifically through science fiction terminology and phenomena, in a fantastic way. Yeah, the the last uh, few chapters of the third book, the one the last one that Moore wrote, they have a war near a black hole, I believe it was. Yeah. Or on a different gravity planet, so everything is done in time dilation. So she walks into the battlefield and when she steps out it's been weeks and months. Yeah. And the tragedy of it all, and the pain of it all. It's uh, sort of like the, the classic science fiction book, The Forever War, but because it's done in a graphic novel via Moore's, you know, writing ticks and Gibson's great art, the hurt of it is much more immediate. There is no oh, yeah. distancing, there is no annihilation. She walks out, and she's told, and you can see her face when she realizes what happened. And yeah. that's like a gut punch. And this is still, like, relatively speaking, this is still early more, which means that Halo is incredibly sympathetic throughout the entire story. And he crafts these side characters that she meets, you know, her unit in the army and the people who serve with her on the ship. And it just creates this really, really, really powerful and emotionally resonant story. And one of the great tragedies that people don't really talk about 
because, you know, when people refer to Alan Moore's unfinished or unwritten works, it's always okay. So Twilight of the Superheroes and Miracle Big Numbers, Man. 1963. There is, there is actually a lot of unfinished yeah, more. But the, the, you know, some of them, like 1963, I don't think anybody ever really, you know, fixates on. But the, the thing that always stays in my mind when I reread Halo Jones is that he, it's a complete story. It's three chapters. It ends on a note that really does bring closure. And that's great. But this was supposed to be a nine book series. Yeah. And there, the, the, the thing that, sort of sticks in my craw when I reread it is that there is a prologue to the second book that takes place, I think, 3,000 years later. And it's about a history professor who is teaching a course on Halo Jones and all of the things that she did and pirates and, and smuggling icebergs and doing all sorts of crazy things. And you get the idea that Moore at that time had a much, much larger story to tell. Like this wasn't a Miracle Man situation where he ended the third book and then he passed it on to Neil Gaiman. And as far as he was concerned, he was done. He had a lot more to do with Halo Jones by the sounds of it. And unfortunately, this was around the time he got into a rights fight and all sorts of problems with 2000 AD and ended up leaving them. So after that, did you became a fixed reader? Did you search out more from the 2000 AD stuff or is it just something you dipped into every once in a while? I did not become a regular reader of the prog. To be fair, I'm still not a regular reader of the prog. We're both more of a collection person. Yeah. Either way. I go for the trades. But what happened was that once I had finished consuming like everything that Moore had done for 2000 AD, I was like, okay. the, The funny thing is that I had not really gotten into comics criticism and comics history like in an academic sense at that point so i didn't know about the british invasion right what ended up happening for me was that i became aware of it because i was like okay so alan moore did all this stuff before he came to dc i wonder if that's true for someone else grant morrison had just started new x-men so I'm like, I wonder if Morrison worked for 2000 AD. And lo and behold, first thing I found was Zenith. A couple of old copies of the, the trades and I sat and I read them and they were, they were, you know, I, I was enjoying Morrison's run on New X-Men. But even at that point, I was feeling like the up and down with my relationship with Morrison where he would do these brilliant things. And then he would write things like his new X-Men I was loving. And then I went back and tried to read his JLA. And I'm like, I have no idea what's going on over here. I don't understand any of this. And um, Zenith sort of confirmed for me the idea that a lot of the creators that I like might actually be here. And then you go and you find out, you know, Peter Milligan came from 2008 D. Uh, uh, Dan Abnett had a huge thing going on and still to this day had a lot going on with 2000 AD. And then sort of from that point, I found myself also going towards writers who had not yet broken out in the States, but who were doing amazing things in 2000 AD, like Gordon Rennie. Um, what was the name? Of- Robbie Morrison. Robbie Morrison, of course. Uh, there was also... Um, I'm trying to remember who was the guy that did Al's Baby. 
No, I that think was that was John actually Wagner. Wagner. That was Wagner that, too. Yeah, yeah. There was also a Ian. Some I, I'm, the name is I'm, Ian Edgington. Oh yeah, yeah. Who uh, did Leviathan, Leviathan, Red Seas? We'll get into detail on all of that later. But like that was sort of my my progression, right? So I started out with Moore, and then from sort of expanding from him to writers that I knew in the present day, because in the present day, they were still working and they were still doing things at Marvel DC. This was before the image Renaissance. So, you know, that was kind of all there was. And then from there, sort of gradually getting used to writers. I mean, we're talking, you know, Robbie Morrison. There was this huge confusion at the time. Yeah, yeah. Because you had Robbie Morrison. always, you only have the family name on the spine of the graphic novel usually. So it says Morrison, and you're, oh, and then you look at it, and I'm, I'm sorry, like, Robbie Morrison wrote some great stuff. We've talked Nikolai Dante before, and we both love it, mm-hmm. but but usually when you see, like, a unknown trade on, on the side from, like, Wildstorm or something, and it says Morrison, you're, oh, Grant Morrison wrote something, and I didn't notice in your opening, and it's Robbie Morrison, and... And you're sort of kind of like, should I try it? I don't know. Well, this was the confusing thing, though, because you had Robbie Morrison, you had Grant Morrison, you also had Robbie Williams, who was writing other things for for 2000 AD at the time. Not Robbie Williams, the singer. Robbie Williams, the comic writer. Rob, Rob Williams. Rob Williams. I I think nowadays it's just Rob. (laughs) To avoid confusion. Right. So Rob Williams. Not that it helped, right? And he had also, like, he wasn't a 2000 AD writer, but he was starting to get, uh, like, famous at Marvel or, or was it DC? No, I think it was, he was doing stuff for Marvel. And then, so you had, there was all of this mess going on. I think he did Deadpool for, like, a couple of issues. But, um, yeah, so, and the thing about Robbie Morrison is, you know, the stuff that he did for 2000 AD was really, really good. But then in contrast to that, he did like the volume of the authority after Mark Miller, and it was terrible. Yeah. It's the one where they take over America. Yeah, oh, no, nobody God. was going to come out good out of that one, but. Yeah. So it was sort of, it always went back and forth. And he, I mean, his 2080 stuff also was a little like, you know, he, so from Nikolai Dante, he also did Shakara. I really like Shakara, mostly no. for the art. I'm, I'm <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm not, it's an art showcase. I mean, I read the first book and it's, you know, it's an alien killing machine killing stuff gruesomely. And yeah. it only says one word. It's like Shakara, bleh, Shakara. And, yeah. you know, he knows what he's doing. He's letting flip. Henry, the great Henry Flynn just do his thing. Sure. If, if that, but, but that is also, I think, like, you could have just given it to Henry Flint. Like, what is Rob, what is Robbie Morrison actually doing here? But, um, yeah, sound, and then. Sound effect, murder. <laughs> that must be the easiest writing job in the world, by the way. The, that one <laughs> word balloon across the entire script. Um, yeah, so that was sort of my, my course. And then once I had, like, the writers that I, enjoyed you know Rennie and Edgington and like the ones that were consistent it became a matter like to this day it's always what is what trades are coming out who's written them and what are they about and you know you have a 50-50 chance of getting something really good sometimes even with you know complete one-offs like um, Simon Spurrier used to do some stuff for 2000 AD you know so he had uh, I I think he's still doing right now it all of those writers that are 
breaking slowly in America. Like, Williams is big at DC now, but he still drops back at 2008 every once in a while to do a serial. Yeah. I think that there's an interesting differentiation between, like, the first generation of the British invasion and the second one, where the first one never really went back. Yeah. You know, Peter Milligan, I, I mean, Milligan went back to do Bad Company, but I think more as a tribute to... Um, uh, Brett Ewens, you know, after yeah. he passed, I think that was more sort of him paying tribute than having some real interest in going back to Bad Company. Yeah, but like you said, more left, Morrison left. Uh, yep. Miller left as much as nobody wanted him. <laughs> yeah. You know. Miller left and, you know, God bless, you know. And then in, con- sure, but then in contrast to that, you do have like a lot of the current day writers. Like Dan Abnett will go back and forth. He was doing, uh, Hercules. Not too long ago on, uh, at Marvel, and now he's doing something else, uh, gray area 2008. Like, those writers, I think, kept their options open more. Yeah, the, f- the first generation of 2008 writers were there for the start. Like, John Wagner, still there. Pat Mills, still there. All of those people who are still alive and working tend to stay in 2008. Second generation of, of big names. Started out, got big in America, and mostly never looked back. And now we have the third generation that can just jumps in and out. And I think it's most a lot of it is technology because in the past, in the eighties, if you wanted to move to America, well, you had to move to America, and that's that. You can't, right. you couldn't just send it all by the internet and do it on Skype. And nowadays, if you want to work for an American company, you can do it from your home at London or whatever. You don't, you don't need to leave. The area, you can do two things at once. Yeah. It has become sort of decentralized. And I think also, like, 2000 AD don't require that their people actually be in the building. I don't think anybody does that nowadays. Yeah. So uh, I af- think that- after the collapse of CrossGen, people are like, maybe we shouldn't keep all our artists in a <laughs> where they can discover that we don't pay them. Uh, very true. Uh, you know, Valiant so, came back, and uh, all those companies <laughs> come back. CrossGen is going to be back someday. You know, I wouldn't be surprised, but if... It's going to be resurrected as a literal cult. <laughs> Follow my ways, and ye shall be released from comic book prison. Although, like, when you think about it, the only thing that they were ever good at, right, CrossGen, was that whole idea of the shared universe, and I think that that has gotten a little stale now. Okay, uh, my origin story, I have two actually. I have the false start and the full start. Okay. And in the early 2000s, when I was just getting into comics, like into serial comics proper, um, you know, American, Western style, whatever, there was this uh, website called Ninth Art. I don't know if you know it, remember Sure. And that was a lot of, a bunch of British writers and some of them actually went on to work in comics. Like Anthony Johnston was there. Yeah. And Kieran Gillen was there, actually, moving in from his career as a video game critic. And, of course, Paul O'Brien and L. Kennedy, who later went on to do the House to Astonish podcast. Our favorite podcasts, our inspiration, our light in, in heavens and so forth. Mm-hmm. And because they were British, there were several things that in, in all of their highfalutin, oh, let's elevate comic stock, they, there were several things that they kept coming back to, like... They always talked up Transformers, okay? UK, <laughs> UK fans of a certain age are mad about tra- 1980s Transformers comics. For them, 
Simon Fruman is like unto a god. Yeah. But I wasn't really into that. But they also really liked 2000 AD. And one of the first big reviews they had was for ABC Warriors The Black Hole. And they talked it up and up. And I said, well, well, I got to try this weird whatever this thing is. Uh, it was Simon Beasley on art. So I was about 18 or 19. So to a 19-year-old heavy metal fan, just seeing the Simon Beasley pencils was enough of a recommendation. Mm. And I got that. And I really liked it, but I, was ne- I wasn't drawn into it. I, wa- I didn't become a 2008 fan. I was just a guy who occasionally bought a trade like you said i got into more so i so i bought halo jones and uh, i got into garth ennis and i found some of his dread stuff on second hand and i mm-hmm. bought that but i was never a dread fan okay cut 2012 i was becoming proper comics critic as much as one can be a proper comic critic in this godforsaken country <laughs> i was writing and writing about comics in in various hebrew blogs and i was also finishing uh, writing my book, uh, Curing the Postmodern Blues for Sequart. And then the Dread movie was announced. And the trailer started coming out. And I said, well, I'm going to write about that one. I'm going to want to talk about that. because That's going to be a talking point. And I should, so I should probably read some Dread. And I asked, what, what's my first collection if I want to start proper? And they told me, uh, somebody told me on the internet... Judge Dredd, Complete Case Files, number five, which is the Apocalypse War. Mm-hmm. And that was as good as entry point as they could have chosen, because the movie came, and I really liked it, but nobody else really wanted to talk about it. So all my high in, oh, we'll do a series of articles about that, and everybody will be excited, was like, two people read it. Mm-hmm. But I was suddenly hooked into this thing. It was... Unlike everything I've ever read before, because the Apocalypse War ends with Judge Red pushing the button and killing half a billion people. Yeah. The decision is mine, there will be no mercy. That wasn't something a comic book hero, a protagonist even, if you want to say anti-hero, whatever, does. He doesn't kill 500 million people and then goes on to do further adventures. That was so weird to me. And that sort of became my hooking point. And a few years later, I've decided uh, my t- the time has come to decide my PhD. And ed- right now, I can admit it, mostly as an excuse to just read more comics. I said, I'm going to just... <laughs> he was like, what will allow me to, in good consciousness, spend uh, hundreds and thousands of dollars on comics? I know I'm going to talk about Judge Dredd. The whole of Judge Red, and that's my PhD right now. Um, I, I won't explain it because it, it's this boring academic thing. And I sort of forced myself to read into it, and I became half a fan, half like of a scholar, if you want to say, or a critic or whatever. And that's my 2008 origin story. Hmm. And okay. I'm still discovering. Like, I, I jumped right into the deep water, and... If you listen to the podcast over the last two years, you know that over you know every once in a while I'll find something that's old to you, Sean. Definitely old to like longtime readers, but to me it's this exciting new thing. Yeah, like first diving into Strontium Dog, and, and you know it starts off slow, and there's some uh, g- generic science fiction action, but then you have the the long serial like the Rage and the the history of Wolf Stern and I'm like, oh my god, or jumping into Nikolai Dante because. 
I knew Robbie Morrison from Wildstorm. Like you said, the authority stuff. I read it and I thought, there's, I'm not going to like this. It's, it's the other Morrison. It's the boring Morrison. And then, <laughs> and then I'm reading Nikolai Dante. And oh my God. This is amazing. Where's this guy's been all my life? Yeah. And so it, it's, it's the joy of discovery, really. I, I keep on buying uh, Lawless and Brink and all those new serials whenever they're collected. I'm still... I only jump into the into the magazine, into 2080 or the Judge Dredd magazine every once in a while to the monthlies mm-hmm. or the weeklies because, like you, I'm a, I'm a trade guy. Yeah. But well, there's I, also the issue that, like, the, the, the thing about the Meg and the... the core magazine itself, uh, the Prague, is that because the stories are always in rotation and they're never really consistent about long-term arcs, there can be a period where I'm reading this story, like Kabbalistics Inc. has finished this chapter, they're not coming back next month, and I'm not really into Slain, right? So then it's like, okay, I'll just step out of the Prague and then come back in when there's a new story, because it always goes in groups of like four, yeah. Or five, right? And then these are the features that will be around for the next two, three, however long it takes for them to finish a given story. And then after that, you could get something new. You could get the return of something old. Like 2000 AD sort of ding them just from the start before we really get into the nitty gritty. They do have that anthology problem of not really being especially clear about what is coming up. You know what I mean? They'll never really give their fans a preview of, here are the stories until the end of 2017. Yeah, it's usually going to be, here's the stories for the next month or so. Yeah, on the solicitations. Like, in the previews, they'll say, we have four progs. These are the stories that will be contained in them. Beyond that, you don't know nothing. And, for example, I was I was reading the prog towards the end years of Nikolai Dante. But then what would happen would be an arc would end and then he wouldn't be back the next month. And I'd be like, you know, I'll come back later. Like, let me know when when this story starts back up again, because I don't know. You know, Zombo didn't really work for me. Al Ewing, of course. Oh, right? hush. I I lo- lo- Zombo is my love I know. I know. I'm I like I'm not going to openly criticize Zombo. It's just <laughs> like it did not click for me. You know, Crime I read it and I was like. And I'm the deodorant. <laughs> You know, I might go back someday and look at it, but at the time it was sort of like, you know, there's a break. You mm. can stop. And, and the nice thing about right, the anthology format is you leave the prog, you come back to the prog, nothing. You haven't missed much of anything. The, the, especially the, one of the biggest things about 2000 AD, especially for someone who's used to American-style comics and pacing, is that they don't waste your time. Like, if you don't like something... A certain story, you will know it in seven pages. Yeah. And because every magazine, every prog, as you said, is four to five stories, and all of them are at max seven pages each, they have to just keep on moving. You won't find writing for the trade. Even when they're no even when they know they're doing a long serial, like Brink just recently finished that was thirteen or fourteen parts, I believe. The second volume, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They don't waste your time. Even when they know it's going to be a nice uh, collection on the shelf. No, every seven pages have to count. Something's got to happen. And so you don't get a lot of double page spreads, which are just there to 
you know, resell the art later or just because the writer didn't have the time to write a long strip or a lot of stuff happened. No, no, no. Lots of stuff always happens. It's a very plot-based comic, which is, you know, it's important to me when I read science fiction action adventure. Stop yeah. wasting my time. And they never do. Even at their worst, they never do. Yeah, I think that's that has been a strength of theirs. And like over the last, I think, five years, they have been getting progressively better at putting out trades, both physical and digital. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, they even with that trade program in place, they don't mess with the format. And I think it has brought out the best in writers who in other places have not been so great. Like, what do we always say about Simon Spurrier, right? Always mm. on the cusp of things when it is a story that he determines the pace of. Whereas something like um, uh, From Grace, he had to do five-page installments for the entire story. Yeah. Uh, speaking of collections, I think it's time to... I have some talking points. See, I Go came prepared. <laughs> uh, now, are, are you aware of Hachette Partworks? That sounds like something Lovecraft would have come up with. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, Hachette, one of the biggest book publishers in the world, have this deal with various comic publishers in which you're doing a long series of uh, small hardcover collections, like slightly smaller than the usual American comics, so not really 2018 magazine size. And they do this theme collection. So they have the Heroes of Marvel. It was like... An 80-part collection of hardcovers covering all their biggest stories. Your uh, Barry Windsor Smith Weapon X all the way to Civil War, which is a terrible story, but it is a big story, right? Mm-hmm. And about uh, three years ago, they started the Mega Collection, which was the biggest stories of Judge Dredd and the spinoffs. And all of those are like £10 each for a nice hardcover of two, about 200 pages each. And unfortunately, you can't get them outside of the UK. It's this terrible administrative business. So I really like those and I try to get them, but it always like pay a third party seller to ship them to Israel, which is A, a pain and B, hilariously expensive to get even one of those, which is something that's supposed to cost £10 each, right? Yeah. But it's, it's apparently being successful enough that A... Uh, they made it longer. The original Mega Collection was supposed to run for 80, they call it issues, like 80 collections. And they've just announced, no, we're going to do 10 more because people like them. And then they've announced they're doing the ultimate collection 2008 and they're going to do all the smaller serials. So they've, they're going to do the complete Slain and they're going to do the complete uh, Strontium Dog and possibly Nikolai Dante and some other stuff. And right after that started, they've already said the next thing after that is going to be Future Shocks. Like, they're going to try and collect the whole of Future Shocks. Wow. Future Shocks, for our listeners who aren't familiar with, are sort of self-contained, done-in-one short stories. Yeah. Uh, Alan, they, Alan, Alan Moore made his name on them. A lot, a, lot of, a lot of writers that are now famous just got their start by doing, you know, get, write us a five-page one-off and see if you can work in this time span, in this short period. Yeah. 
Of course, as a result of that, they can be incredibly uneven. Even some of Moore's future shocks are not like the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. But it would still be a valuable thing to have because, you know, that that sort of speaks to the core mission statement of 2000 AD. The future shocks, right? The idea of these short, self-contained, typically with a twist, science fiction angles. Yeah, it's it was Black Mirror before being Black Mirror, and only exactly. five pages instead of ninety minute, ninety terrible minutes. So, uh, on the whole, a lot better than than Black Mirror. Now, like I said, the annoying thing about these collections, and for I don't know why, it's only available in the UK. And the other problematic thing is that the the size, right? Two thousand AD. In case you don't read a lot of it, is printed on larger paper than American comics. And the collections also tend to be on a whole about you know uh, two three inches bigger both to the sides and to from up to down from the American counterparts mm-hmm. and and the mega collection sort of cuts them down so you do lose some of detail the detailing of the artwork yeah which you know it's supposed to be this chip collection right that uh, like I said 10 pounds for a trade for a hardcover trade but it does you Bring, give me some hope that everything is being kept in print. We've talked several episodes before about the problem of some things just aren't kept well. You have Nikolai Dante, which should be a big thing for them, and only half of it is available. And not even the first half or the second half. You have like the third three trades and then the letter three trades. And in the middle, you have four trades missing for no apparent reason whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. But now you have a way, supposedly, that you can get it all, everything that you want. Yeah, I think that's... Again, like, I can't imagine how difficult it must be to curate a 40-year anthology, right? Like, when you think about the sheer... And it comes out weekly. Yeah. Masses of material. That can't be easy to fix. But I'm glad that they're doing it. Yeah, and the general trend of it seems to be they're successful enough to... Keep on expanding in in terms of collection yeah uh, um, the uh, the two other big things that they've been doing uh, that was 2016 uh, they've bought out a lot of old British strips uh, you know before in the early ages in the 60s and the 50s the anthology thing wasn't just 2018 that was the British comics market unlike the American counterparts which was at that point already moving on to more you superhero based uh, long-term serials they yeah. always have anthologies but those died off with the times and most of this stuff has not been forgotten like old British comic fans will always bring those things up but you couldn't read them unless you I don't know went to a library and scanned their digital collection or something you couldn't yeah. legally read them this is the internet of course you can read them but now they've bought out all those stuff and they're slowly bringing it back to print in trades uh The Leopard of Lime Street, One-Eyed Jack, and again, it's those things that I have no idea what they're on about, but mm-hmm. my friends who are English, British, on Twitter, whenever something like that is announced, you can see their eyes on Twitter, you can see their eyes, you know, grow, and the stars are shining, and it's this thing, it's this thing I loved as a kid. Yeah. No, so absolutely. Yeah. So they're bringing those back, and at the same time, they've announced they're going to launch something called the Scream and Misty Special. Uh, those were two 
horror anthologies. Scream was aimed at boys and Misty was aimed at girls because at the time there was an obvious differential between yeah. boys stories and girls stories. So what they're doing is they're bringing the titles back, Scream and Misty, but instead of reprints, it's new creators working on old strips. So you have something called The 13th Floor, which was from the 60s, I believe, and now it's brought back by uh, Guy Adams, John Stokes, and uh, Fraser Irving. Mm. You have The Dracula Files by uh, Grain McEntry and Tristan Jones. Okay, you have Death Men The Gathering by Henry Flint. And you have Simon Colby on a World War One strip called The Black Max. Mm. It, doesn't, it doesn't sound like any, any one of those is of any, of any interest to you whatsoever. Not so much interest, it's just I, I've never heard of them. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, it's for us who are non-British, it's a weird, weird world that is slowly being uncovered. Yeah. But it, uh, it does bring to mind this... Do they have a mission statement with those? They're bringing in the past and they both keep it in print and resurrect it to hopefully new readers. I wonder if there are any kids nowadays who look at that stuff and will say, Oh, I want to read the adventures of Black Max, the flying German ace from World War One." I. I think, quite frankly, the wrong people might want to... Pit, try and pick up that symbol. Oh, well, events. World War but, One, Sean. World War One. It's it's nice that you oh, think oh, they can wait, tell wait, the wait, difference. Wait, wait, wait. I'm I'm correcting myself. Uh, Black Max is a German World War One fighter pilot that's descended from a race of bat people, uh, and he's flying with two helpful bats, as opposed to unhelpful bats. <laughs> okay. The unhelpful um, bats say this does much. sound like a 50s comedy strip. <laughs> I, the unhelpful bats. <laughs> I think what it might be is, like, I agree with the general idea that there's value in bringing these things back. Now, if they have creative teams that are willing to modernize these concepts, it's not that unusual a prospect. We've seen a lot of classic characters that were left on the wayside over the decades come back and be revived in an efficient way and in a way that reintroduced them to modern audiences. It can be done. The question is, like, you know, in each individual case, who are they using? Who are they bringing back? Who, you know, what is the value? This is the Miracle Man thing, right? There's no inherent value in the Mick Laszlo old school warrior stuff that nobody wanted. Nobody cared. Marvel put out those trades and they sank like a stone. But as soon as you got to the part where it was Alan Moore's Miracle Man and Neil Gaiman's Miracle Man, and hopefully someday they'll finish that. And it still know. sank like a stone. Well, that's because Marvel are greedy as hell. Well, it, they are. And also they did very, very little marketing work to make people understand what it was that they had. I think if there was any value to Miracle Man at all, it was that people could stop using pirated scans or like old magazines that were probably falling apart after 20 years to read that story and have it in a format that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you want to talk some talent things with uh, 2018? Let's. Let's. So because, 2018. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 2018 has had and still has a very interesting stable of creators. Ranging from, you know, like we said, the people who spearheaded the British invasion, 
to people who never really made it big to people who should never have been writing in the first place. Which category would you like to tackle first? <laughs> uh, I I think we should start actually with the older generation with the with the first timers, right? Okay, so obviously, like the big contentious one for me, right? The guy that I was never able to get into, and to this day I just try to avoid him is Pat Mills. Pat Mills, who is known for ABC Warriors, uh, which was itself a spinoff of Rojas and Hammerstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Slain, of course. Um, Nemesis the Warlock. Nemesis the Warlock. And in fact, he did sort of try to interconnect these things at, at different points. He still does. He has this weird, like, Millsverse, yeah. which, which is not technically a thing, but every single thing that he writes is connected in some way and it becomes very weird because at a certain point uh, ro- ro- the Robo Tales was supposed to take place in the Judge Dredd universe. Well, see, and we th- we're talking about that as if it's unusual and weird, but, like, let's be real, that's Marvel, right? <laughs> that's well, DC. yeah, but in Marvel, it's announced. Everybody knows it's a connected universe. In 2000D, it's supposed to be... Separated strips, and everybody does that. Nobody, John Wagner doesn't try and pretend that Elle's baby takes place in the Judge Dredd universe, right? No, but there is a Dreadverse, let's be yeah, fair. Yeah, well, yeah, Dreadverse is one thing, but nobody, most of the standalone strips are supposed to be standalone, and then Pet Mills comes along and says, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm Robert Heinlein, I'm writing my own fictional universe here, don't try and stop me, I will punch you. <laughs> well, to his credit, I mean, it did work in the sense that what he did was uh, ABC Warriors had been ended due to some dispute that he had with the artist. I forget the specifics. And then he started writing Nemesis the Warlock, which was this horse-faced guy fighting the Spanish Inquisition in on an alien planet. I don't even know. It got seriously weird at some point, and I sort It got of seriously out. weird on page one, and then <laughs> it just got weirder. Time traveling yeah. tour Kamadas is the least of the thing. Yeah. And then at some point he reintroduced the ABC Warriors as supporting characters in the Nemesis world. And then they went and had their own adventures afterwards. The thing about Pat Mills, like in terms of an overview, and I've, I've probably mentioned this when we've talked about 2080 before, is he has certain philosophical uh, beliefs that he insists on integrating into his writing despite the fact like sometimes they may be appropriate yeah if you want to talk about like earth mother chaos magic all of that stuff uh, chaos of course with a K and an H um, okay you could probably do that in Slain and get away with it because Slain has that setting in mind or you could do it in Nemesis Warlock because Nemesis the Warlock deals with mysticism and all of this stuff once it starts going into like ABC Warriors dealing with Mother Chaos it's like mm, I think you know he sort of lost control of that at some point and it did sort of mess up his ability to tell a coherent story. Now, as far as I know, Slain is still ongoing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slain is ongoing. Nemesis ended. Nemesis ended. ABC Warriors, I think, has never officially ended. They still come back every once in a while. And Invasion Slash Savage is also technically still a thing. Yeah, he had that uh, that evil dinosaur, right? 
being oh, able Flash, to Flash, yeah, that was back Flash. for a short while, and now it yeah. seems to be and also again. showed also showed up in Nemesis. Yeah, every like I said, everything is connected. Every, yeah. If he could, he would bring back Punisher to 2099 into that. Oh no! Not <laughs> the one, that. The one Marvel thing he ever wrote, I believe. What Punisher 2099 is great, Sean. It's a it horrible book. Single no. best line in all of fiction, in which future Punisher jumps down in order to murder a criminal with his bare hands, and he's and while he's falling, he's saying, "I don't need a jetpack. All I need is my hate." I did not hit her. It. I did not. Hi, Mark. No, okay. <laughs> absolutely not. Because the thing is, you know, that... Uh, I don't even know. I mean, 2099 is a whole other discussion that we're probably going to have one day. But, um, yeah, so he does tend to be very sort of set in his ways. I don't necessarily discount that because clearly it works. Like, Slain is around because people respond to it. Doesn't click for me. I prefer to not get into it. I think it's the most interesting thing about these old-timers is that they're... A, they're still around. Yeah. And B, they're still writing. And C, nobody ever dares to try and shift them to the side. When John Wagner comes back to write the Judge Dredd serial, nobody's, oh, you know, do the short thing. No, he sets the tone. He yeah. makes the rules. And it's weird because we're used to, in big companies, in Marvel and DC, once a writer, an artist reaches a certain age, you're no longer popular, right? And they, you might keep them on retainer, you might pay them for past dues, but nobody's gonna bring in Chris Claremont to set up the X-Men nowadays, right? Yeah. They're gonna I let mean, him do this weird one-off Gen X thing, but when John Wagner or Pat Mills say, we're gonna write this thing, they're gonna write it, and nobody's gonna try and stop them. Sure. I mean, think about, think about the amount of power that John Wagner has at 2000 AD to the extent that, like, obviously there's dread, right? Dread is still ongoing. That much is true. But when you really think about it, look at what happened with Strontium Dog, right? We talked about it. He, they let him retcon what Alan Grant did with his series after he established it. He rebooted it within the context of the anthology, ran with it for a while, and then stopped again. Like, they they just gave him the stage that he needed to do what he wanted. And even, you know, like we said, one of the things that we talked about, like the core strength of 2018 is that they don't reboot, and they don't restart things, and they don't try to, like, reintroduce old material to a new audience. They'll just look for new stories instead. And the only exception that I know of is Strontium Dog. Now, well, I am... Uh, G.I. Uh, Rogue Trooper had that sort of kind of reboot with the other trooper, right? Was that a reboot, though, or was that a continuation? I, it, I think it, it was It was started as a reboot, and then they sort of revealed, oh, it's not a reboot, it's just a different guy. I, I, have, I haven't I read the whole of it yet, so I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm way behind on my Rogue. It's, it's worth looking into, like, for, mm. of the, of the material that I know and, and like of the long running series, that was really the only occasion where the original writer came back having left the strip and said explicitly, this book did not happen. And let's now, unfortunately, like the sad truth is that what he ended up writing in the quote unquote reboot was not that great. Like he didn't really bring anything new to Strontium Dog that had not been there at the end anyway. So you figure 
but again, like that's still a significant amount of, of cash that a writer who has been with the company from the beginning would have. Normally, old timers either get swept under the rug or like Chris Claremont, you give them one book in a faraway corner and just don't bother anybody else. Yeah. And here, if you get popular enough, if you get big enough, uh, the fans won't forget you and you can just keep on coming back and do your thing. Like you said, Milligan comes back every once in a while dipping his toes and he's respected for it. And Dan Abnett could have went to America, could have stayed in America, but he chosen to. He's still producing stuff for 2000 AD. Yeah. So that's interesting. Uh, and it's both a blessing because that means that people, one of the big things with 2000 AD is that people have time to develop their ideas. Yeah. The strength of Judge Dredd, and when we talk Judge Dredd, Papa, we'll, we'll get more into that, is that by this point, it's a 40-year story. And time became this big issue for it, the effects of time on the characters in the world that they can play with. But on the other thing, the curse side is that it takes forever for them to develop new talent in terms of writing. Artists, they seem to be doing pretty well. But in terms of writing, all of the big writers right now are middle-aged or higher. Like the recent breakthrough writer, uh, Michael Carroll, who's getting a lot of Judge Dredd uh, work nowadays, he's mm-hmm. 51. Like yeah. Dan, Dan Abnett, also in his 50s, right? Yeah. And people still seem to think about him, oh, it's this new guy, Dan Abnett. He's writing there since the early 90s. Yeah, they, they really don't have... And again, I, I wonder if that might be because when it comes to hiring, they do seem to follow more of the image philosophy of let's take people who have established names by this point at least. Like to the, as far as I know, the last new writer who actually made an impact there was Gordon Rennie. And that was a while ago. Uh, Emma Beebe seems to be doing pretty well nowadays. But like I said, she's one, right? Yeah. The majority of their talent is still the talent that they have cultivated all along. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Because the last time... Like, I can also understand their their uh, hesitation. Because the last time they swung open their doors and allowed a young maverick to take over the company, it did not go well for them. That was the Grant Morrison-Mark Miller summer offensive thing, right? In the mid-90s. Offensive it was in both name and outcome. <sighs> Grant Morrison's worst work. Uh, possibly yep. Mark Miller's worst work, which says something, right? I feel like nothing can actually be worse than Chosen. Mm, I don't I know. There, like... was, there was this racist Judge Red story in Egypt with the mummy. That was pretty bad. Mm, like, Chosen yeah. is offensive, but it's not racist most of the time. It's just bad uh yeah <laughs> but, okay Mark miller but, what are you gonna like do? i said it's a, it's not a problem as long as they can manage it but they're gonna have to cycle in some young not just newer talent because they have new talent but newer talent that's young and yeah. that's what future shock is meant to be right they even have this yearly writing competition in the fat bubble where somebody is gonna get a chance somebody completely un unrelated to them somebody who doesn't work in comics is going to have a chance to pitch in a new strip and that strip will be published and that should be a jumping on point for them working in comics but so far 
none of it became none of the people doing that became big name writers yet and yeah in Marvel and DC recently there has been a lot of writers who are amazingly fast-tracked right like, um, like we, we you know Scott Snyder mm-hmm. is doing a Marvel miniseries Iron Man War uh, six months later he's doing Batman yeah Jonathan Hickman is doing one image projects uh, two well months that's th- the three right you have Hickman Gillen and remender who all came up more or less at the same time yeah and Snyder uh, even Brubaker broke out really really fast at the time yeah and now well, I think and the 2018 they take forever to break someone in yeah I think the advantage at the time might have been that Marvel and DC when they had those big like promoting and lifting up all these up until that point anonymous writers was that their they had had significant problems with their talent pool like this this was early Casada Jemis when and um, who was running things at DC at the time was it still uh, the deal yeah yeah the it's other forever the deal yeah Yeah, so, you know, they were having significant problems with talent, and they brought in all these new writers. Some of them worked out, some of them did not, right? We, we remember the uh, quote-unquote superstars that they brought up and did not do anything with. But I think that what's different to 2018 is that the old generation never left. Mm-hmm. Like, if you still have John Wagner with you, and he wants to write 2018... Why would you take a chance on someone like I, I can understand that mindset of why risk it with a new creator like Douglas Walk, who does good work, but is not John Wagner, right? And John mm-hmm. Wagner is still here. I feel like for, for there to be an actual creative shakeup at 2018, they would have to be willing to let some of their old talent go. And I think uh, they're going to stay the, there till they're dead, really. Well, I, I wonder though if maybe another aspect of that is you know l- real talk the older talent at 2018 has not fallen down as badly as the their American counterparts I, I, and I'm I'd not sure why fallen down at all like you don't like pet mills very much I like half and half on him but okay but, no, he's, but like he's kept on a level totally and John Wagner if anything I think he's you can say he's almost getting better. Sure, and compare that to you know Chris Claremont, John Byrne, mm-hmm. um, you know we're having problems with Mark Wade now trying to be cool like the kids and it's not really working, right? There is a whole generation of talent in the American industry that for some and I don't know why, but like for some reason, once their writing style aged and fell out of fashion, they couldn't really make an adaptation. And they sort of um they almost evolved into self parody when you think about it, like the joke with Claremont today is okay, it's always going to be like nipple clamps, mind control slavery, and faux lesbianism, and that just like put that in a washing machine and stick it on the repeat cycle so that it just goes around and around every time and it's the same it's the same with two thousand the artists who they never seem to fall out of fashion. Carlos Esquera is drawing yeah. comics. Since my father was a kid, mm-hmm. even, even before that, he's been writing comics since the '60s, I believe, at this point, the early '70s at the latest. And he's just he never falls out of fashion. He keeps on adopting, and you can always tell in a square drawing, you can always tell when he does something. But mm. he moved on from the black and white pencils to the 
uh, to the early 2000s color splash, to the painted style of the 90s, to this more modern-day, sharper stuff, and he never loses focus. Whenever there's a new Carlos Esquire is drawing something, everybody's like, ooh, the king is back, right? Yeah. He never had that moment of, like, you know, to, to use a, a, a parallel. When he stepped down from uh, Strontium Dog and got replaced by, who was the guy? who Col- Simon Col- Harrison. Yeah, and Colleen Simon McNeil Harrison. for a while. Who's yeah, a great and, artist, but not the style for that book. Yeah, and I, maybe that's also part of it, right? Like, these creators, that, that older generation, it's not just that they have not declined in quality. It's that they are so frequently associated with the most iconic moments of their respective series that when they do leave, you feel that there's something wrong. You're going to see this a lot when you go through Nikolai Dante because that series alternated between two very different art styles. But the only advantage there was that they shared equal space. So in any given trade, you might have like the painted style on the one hand and then the the regular style on the other. And it's like, okay, so you've got Charlie Adler here and Simon Fraser here. And, and, and really, it like you said, Nikolai Dante painted style, it's John Burns. This guy's yeah. in his 70s. He's still drawing. He's amazing. Yeah, it's one of those big things. When I got into 2008, I was still thinking mostly in terms of writers, and now I'm more slowly developing my taste in artists. And all of those guys, I'm looking at them, and how come you're not famous? Like, it's it's very hard for those British writers to break in America. The British artists are non-existent. Ing Cupboard, why isn't he huge? Arthur Renson, the guy who did most of the big uh, Judge Anderson stories. Mm-hmm. He should be as big as Bill Sienkiewicz. You look at stuff like Shambhala or Satan and the artistry of it all. Why isn't people talking about it? There should be books of art dedicated to their works. And I only learned about them when they were in their 70s. This is just weird to me. Arthur Renson is 81 now. Yeah. Yeah, but they're still... And I, I wonder... You know, we say they failed to break into the American market. I wonder if they even tried. Because this describes, like, they have very solid job security there, whereas, you know, the American market is bound by very different considerations. Yeah. You know, I mean, they couldn't hold on to... Look at Marvel. Marvel couldn't hold on to Chip Starsky for more than six issues. You know, that's like, when you're in that... Why would you... And if you had another company that was offering you, like, acceptable terms... For a period of time, you know, I maybe they didn't even bother. Okay. Uh, we want to talk Judge Dredd, or is there anything else? Because I think Dredd will be our finishing point. <laughs> Let's talk about Dredd. First of all, did you hear this news about the TV show? Yes, we've talked about it several times now. But now it, they have yeah. confirmed that they're talking to Carl, uh, Carl Urban. Yeah, they're talking to him. They call him on the phone and they're like, Hello, Carl. Hello. Who is this? Bye, Carl. Simply as they could say on the news, we've talked to Carl Urban. I yeah. think they might they might want him. Yeah, I, well, ob- they want him. The fans, us, obviously want him. I wonder if he'll do it. Because, like I said... It's a, it's a British TV show, so it's going to be a drop in the budget compared to American movies that he's doing nowadays. Mm. But we'll, we'll hope and we see, and if they can't get him, it'll be nice to see him as a chief, as a chief judge or something. Yeah, you know, the occasional cameo would be mm. cute. So yeah, let's, start, let's uh, get into Dread. 
Uh, we'll talk Dread nowadays, I think. Because okay. they, uh, have you been following Dread over the last year? Um, I have been following Dread never. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just so you know, I don't read it. Uh, I, I, you're familiar with the characters, and I think from movies and pop culture in general, most of the readers are familiar with, you know, it's the future of America, yeah. uh, radiated the wasteland, mega cities, judge, jury, and executioner, toughest of yeah. them all, judge Dredd. That's, that's the thing. Yes, and please do us a favor if you're listening to this podcast, do not refer to the Sylvester movie. I really like the soundtrack of that movie. I don't know. It's great. That's, like the, that's the only nice thing anyone can say about it. It's a great soundtrack. Um, yes, for a terrible movie. Sure, sure. Uh, okay. Now, the, the, really, Sean? <laughs> that's not. That's mean. That's just mean. You're mean. You're being meany. Uh, Judge Red is the longest running strip in 2008. It's been running since Prague slash issue number two, and it's the only thing that's been running nonstop. There hasn't been a single issue without a new Judge Red story. Yeah. So that's over 2,050 uh, stories at this point. Oh, well, 2,050 issues, the stories themselves can usually... Yeah, 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 yeah. Months. And that's even without counting the Judge Red magazine, which is longer stories in a monthly or sometimes bi-monthly format, depends on the period. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying, there's a lot of Judge Dredd. And the interesting thing about it, like you said, there is no reboots. At this point, there is a 40-year history of Judge Dredd. And not only do all the stories count, they've made a decision at a certain point. For the, for the first few years, it was unofficial, but at a certain point, it was decided. Time is moving for Judge Dredd the same way it moves for us. So when the strip started, it was the space year 2099. And now, 40 years later, in strip time, we are in the year uh, 2139. Time has moved. The character has go- grown old from being this young maverick cop who goes out on the streets every day to this older statesman of the law. The guy who's an institute within his city, within his world. You know, whenever people talk about Dread, they're talking about somebody who survived everything from... Uh, alien invasions to demonic entities to uh, coups against the cities mm-hmm. and it became this really interesting story over time especially since uh, America possibly the greatest judge read story of them all in 1991 about someone who knows he works within a broken system yeah someone who knows that he's a fascist and that the way the judge system is rigged is terrible and it doesn't help anybody. But he, at the same time, he can't break out of it. He knows that he's working for something bad, but he's so set in his way. He grew up into that system that he can never allow it to be destroyed. And he can never really go against it. He can, he's a nicer guy now. In the past, he used to shoot like jaywalkers. And nowadays, he tried to find the nicer way to deal with criminals, but... But he can never become this something else. And it's this amazing long-term story about him trying to groom his successors. Uh, are you familiar with the character of America Beanie? I've heard of... Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She was introduced in America, which is this big climactic judgment storyline about him fighting against pro-democracy terrorists. 
That's a thing that happens in the Judge Dread world. <laughs> uh, soon in America, or maybe even tomorrow. Oh, God. Oh, God. And one of those activists is called America Jara, and at a certain point she has a daughter called uh, America Beniam. And that daughter is allowed to grow up, and at a certain point she becomes a judge herself. And mm-hmm. her whole story arc is that she wants to change the system from within, not to destroy it. She says, I want to be a judge and I want to advance in the wrecks so I can change things. And you can see slowly Dredd is grooming her in the hopes that one day she will do the thing that he can't do because he knows he can't do it anymore. Yeah. And on the other hand, you have uh, young Rico, which is a Dredd clone, who also is allowed to slowly grow up from a young cadet judge to a grown-up judge. And at this point, he's at the same state that Dredd was... When the strip just started, he's a big, famous judge in his prime, in physical terms. But he's, unlike unlike Beanie, he's super rigid. He's young Judge Dredd. And you can see Dredd sort of juggling those two future hairs to his crown of who will be the next big thing and what does it mean to the city. Will Will it be the guy who keeps on trying to keep the system as it is? Or will it be the woman who wants to try something else? Right, and yeah, you they, couldn't do it in a shorter story because it would feel super accelerated. In a, if you want to do it in a image series, right? You want to do an image series with the same basic concept. You would have to introduce them by issue two or three, the successors, and then to grow them up super fast. But here, it takes time. It takes all the time in the world for those things to happen, and therefore they feel more realistic. Yeah, the the use of Mega City as, on the one hand, it is this organic setting that evolves and grows and things that happen. In fact, I think like even recently they've been making references as far back as the Apocalypse War. Like it is a um, a setting that is informed by its own history at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're saying getting larger. Mega City One is getting smaller. Uh, it's dark, it's, no, no, because because whenever they hit a certain point, the writers say, "Let's do something big." And unlike Marvel Universe stories where people are died and then resurrected, people are died and they stay dead here. So well, when, when, when mostly the, when the city started, it was 800 million people. Then the apocalypse story, uh, the apocalypse war story happened, and it's 400 million people. Then Acropolis happened, and it's like 200 million people. And then in 2009, I believe, it was Chaos Day, 40 million people. Yeah. But like, they same. basically decimated the city. And it's under, and they keep on doing stories about them being on the brink. And this, the whole political and socioeconomic structure is almost about to collapse every single second. But... It's funny, like that sense of reduction is contrasted with the fact that when you look at how, like what we, we mentioned it before, right? The Dreadverse. Mm-hmm. What is the Dreadverse? You have had all of these side series and characters who may have appeared first in Dread and then like spread outward. So it can be something local, like for example, Chopper who's this iconic character, right? Grew out of a Judge Dread story into his own a uh, sort of little spin-off that went off for a while. I think even after Song of the uh, Surfer, they brought him back a couple uh, of times. They, they've announced they're going to do another one, like The Last Chopper. I'm not surprised. Yeah. You know, like, so there's that. Devlin Wah is technically part of um, 
of uh, the Dreadverse. Yes, right? uh, we've talked whole... lawless in this very show about two months back. Yeah, and so you know there do, uh, and I don't think that there's any pattern to it. Like you know, they just spawn off out of. Uh, uh, Judge Dredd stories and then on it goes sometimes it's ancillary like the whole you know we're talking about Dredd here Anderson has had her own series for at least as long as he has Oh yeah, the the big problem I always have with Anderson is that I like Dredd because she's the pretty one she's not allowed to get old for some reason she's supposed to be in her 60s at this point She Mm -hmm. she doesn't look like that like, Dreddy, you never see his face, but they added wrinkles to his chin. <laughs> like, his chin is super is super deep and wrinkled right now. And Anderson, you know, she, she still looks like an older, more respected Debbie Harry for some reason. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a good serial, Anderson. I'm just saying, you know, let her grow up. She can be respectable. She doesn't have to be the eye candy anymore. We grew yeah. up past that. But, That's true. Mm, uh, what I'm saying about Judge Red, uh, there was this very good episodes of the Comic Book of Burning Hell podcast after the Day of Chaos was finished, and they made this nice point about how it feels like it's John Wagner coming as close as as Rebellion would let him to kill off the series, like being an old. He's an older man right now. He's in his seventies at this point, I believe, like mm-hmm. late sixties, early seventies, and he has this amazing thing that he's built. And it's obvious, like it's obvious that he has an endpoint in mind, that he has the last Jet story that he wants to write, but he can never write it because it's the most popular character ever. He he could kill Johnny Alpha, he can't kill Dread, never. Yeah, killing Dread, I think. Well, see, this is the thing. I I don't know if I would go as far as to say that there is no way he could ever do it. I think that there will come a point where 2000 AD would want to push that button and. S- at least try to, like, it's the Arthur Conan Doyle situation, right? Can you get rid of your star character and then continue to create work that people will care about on the same level? Because if people are only reading 2000 AD for Judge Dredd, there's, it becomes sort of like this inherent meaninglessness in anything else that they try to do. Well, it's not just I, for Judge Dredd, but I think it's the one thing that keeps everybody's going to be back for that one. Hmm. So, yeah, that's that's sort of the thing that I wonder if maybe that's what they're planning. You know, that there will come a point where they want to make Because if they would, like, the Day of Chaos probably would have been the thing. Because it's amazingly brutal, like, slow-burning story about failure. Mm -hmm. The the Apocalypse War is a story about the city is attacked by the Soviet forces and Dredd fights back and he wins. He wins by murdering hundreds of millions of people, but he wins. Day of Chaos... Day of Chaos is a story of failure. It's about him failing to stop the assault, and then failing to stop the virus, and then failing to stop the terror attacks after that. He, ca- he barely keeps up people from dying, but he never wins against anybody. The mm-hmm. bad guys die by their own hand. They said, well, we've completed our, our mission, we took vengeance, we can kill ourselves. Yeah. And it's this amazing, painful story about failure and about... John Wagner saying, look, in case you didn't get it yet, this system is broken and terrible. And even even their their proclamations of, we took your freedom so we can keep you safe, they're wrong. Mm. They can't keep anybody safe. They can't save the civilians, even in the price of taking away all of their freedoms. So what good is there in the judgment system? None. Right. But 
the story can't die. Uh, but mm-hmm. it does, uh, ever since then, ever, ever since uh, the early, I think, 2012, they seem to be hitting off on three major writers at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are plenty of smaller writers and people who are coming and do like a short takes on the character and some of them might grow up to be the future big Dread Rider. But they have right now, as far as I'm concerned, they have John Wagner, who whenever yeah. he comes back, he's doing this big story which is either a cap off of something, like I said, possibly the last chopper or the start of something else. Uh, mm-hmm. The last big story, the last two big stories he did was A, he did the death of PJ Maybe, which is probably... The second longest running dread villain is this guy who started out as a kid serial killer. And because the story takes place over 40 years, he was allowed to grow up into an adult serial killer. And they killed him off. After about 30 years of appearances, they killed him off. Right. And the other thing they did is they reintroduced the idea of robot judges, of dread and co possibly being replaced. And this is obviously kind the kind of story that ends up as a setup of... Dread saying, you can't do this. You can't take the human element out of what we do. And the higher-up saying, well, we have some kinks to work out, but we're going to do it. Like, we're going to replace you. Yeah. So he's doing those two things. Uh, You have Rob Williams, uh, we've mentioned before. And he's doing this strange, long-running mystery story about possibly traitors within the Justice Department, possibly something even more sinister. He keeps on coming back for those short arcs that always hint at something ominous to come. Uh, there was this great, great uh, creepy three-parter with Chris Weston about uh, the judge, the judges who judge the judges. The, how, do you say, <laughs> how, how do you say it? Internal affairs? Yes, the internal affairs of the judgment system. And one of them basically murders young judges who we deem unfit for duty. And it ends with this ominous shot of him planting all of their helmets in the field. And what is he doing there? We don't know, and he's building it up slowly, and he keeps on coming back to that image. And finally, we have Michael Carroll, who, like I said, he's 51 now, but he's the sort of breakout star of, of 2000 AD, and he's doing the Dread as a Hero stories. Not, not you know, not normal superhero, not the good guy, but the guy who finds something wrong and he fixes it. Yeah. Uh, in 2016, he has this great story about... Uh, the other megacities sort of doing a political pact against Mega City One and trying to undermine their political structure and take over from within and without. And Dread sort of going undercover and taking care of that. And now we have some nice story about people abusing mutant rights because that's the minority thing in the Judge Dread world and, and Dread going out on the chase against them. Are the evil judges still around? Judge Death and all those? Uh, they they are mostly kept to Wagner. I think there's this agreement that only John Wagner can touch those guys. Because mm-hmm. one of the good things about them, the evil judges, the evil magic judges from an alternate universe, is that they're so ridiculously over the top that if you bring them again and again, if you bring them in too much, they're like the juggernaut in the X-Men. It's yeah. Oh, it's the unstoppable juggernaut. Oh, he's been stopped 60 billion times. And the Dark Judges are the longest-running Dread Villains, but they only appeared at this point about a dozen times. Right. They, they, they aren't utilized a lot, which is their strength. So I think there's a moratorium about stuff that only John Wagner is allowed to do. Which is probably for the best, honestly. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, it is sort of amazing when you think about the architecture of this place and how it really has managed to 
on the one hand, not overexpose things to the point of, I mean, any other fictional universe that we can think of that has been ongoing for that amount of time would have collapsed at some point. Whether it's because of, like, changing cultural circumstances or input from other writers or whatever. Like, we have seen this for ourselves. Every other fictional universe in comics has been rebooted, retooled, revamped, re-something. And the fact that 2000 AD has gone to such lengths to keep it going is, on the one hand, admirable. On the other hand, I think it does... There does come a point where I think you do have to ask, is there a danger of, like, ideas becoming static and stale? You know, when you have a setting that is not allowed to shift with different creative voices. But on the other hand, like we're saying, you know, Wagner hasn't actually lost his touch, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's not just that. I think it's really, it's the decision that time should move. That's the that's the major point because once you decide things get older, people, stuff, the world, you're allowed to do changes. So when yeah. dread kills five hundred million people, it's not just a one-off thing. It's this moment that keeps on coming back to hunt him because there are revenge plots and then there are counter revenge plots and the world is angry at him and people keep on mentioning, "Oh, you're that guy. You killed half a billion people. Why should I trust you as any sort of moral authority?" And he keeps, right. and he starts to wonder about himself. Did I do the right thing at the time? It seems like the right thing, but now. And I just, I imagine the Marvel or the DC universe. What would have happened if, it, at the sixties, Stanley would Stanley and Ditko and Kirby would have actually stuck in with the idea of, yeah, let's let them grow old because it seemed like it at the time, right? Peter Parker was a high schooler and then a college student and a university student. Yeah. What would have happened? What sort of world? Not just the fictional universe, but the way the company thinks about its writers and the artists and the fans, if characters were allowed to circle out. If we really had, at this point, Miles Morales, you know, or a version thereof, the new Spider-Man, who isn't just looked on as an interloper as, oh, it's this guy, but Peter Parker's going to be back, right? We know Peter Parker's going to be back. No. Exactly. In, in the other world, in the world where timeline is allowed to move on in real time, Peter Parker wouldn't come back because he's a 70-year-old man now. Yeah. You know, it was something that that in the mainstream tends to only be imagined as sort of a what-if or an alternate universe scenario. Like, uh, you know, you had Spider-Girl back in the day. Uh, you had the... You remember John Byrne did that, um, that Elseworlds trilogy or or series where it was like sean i remember spider-man rain by kara andrews that's what i remember (laughs) why on earth would you invoke that horror it's the dark in this house it's the the almost darkest timeline sean it's Um, what if the dark knight returns was done in spider-man style by a guy who's not as good as frank miller i have to take objection to you calling it the almost darkest timeline, because I think once you get to the point of citing radioactive jizz, um, it, there is no going back from that. Well, I don't think no, that no, there's no, a... because several... At the same time, we had JMS Spider-Man with the rape of Gwen Stacy by the older Green Goblin and their twins. Ah, uh, yes. Norman so you see, Osborne's the actual things. darkest timeline was the present at that time. <laughs> Wow, there was some bad Spider-Man Woo! books in the early 2000s. Like yeah, proper, and, and to be fair... terrible stuff. 
And if we're being fair, I'm willing to bet that not every Judge Dredd story, even the Judge Dredd stories that Wagner wrote, were not always the best written and the most oh, consistent no, no. and the most interesting. Of, there's A, sure. there's a ton of filler, B, the older stuff. Um, it's not just that some of it hasn't aged well. Some of it is quite racist, actually. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's visiting the Japanese mega cities and like, it's honorable this and samurai that. And hmm, uh, the art's nice. You know, maybe we can remove the word balloons. Yeah. But it's not, it's not all great. It can't, it can't be all great when you have this pressure of a new story every week and there's never any break. And for a long time, it really was just Wagner and Grant writing it all down. So obviously there's going to be a lot of filler, there's going to be a lot of crap, but when it shines, it shines. When, when, it, when, it, becomes, uh, when it becomes this thing that utilizes its own history and its own megastructure, as it were, it's yeah. unlike any other story in comics. Because it has this weight. When the character does something different or new or unique, he works against 40 years of history. Which is something that you can't take. You can't just say, write a story in which you have an older hero and saying, he's doing something he's never done before. Because I, I've never met that hero before. You're just telling me about him now. In Dread Case, when it was 1995, uh, there was this story where some guy's wife has died. And in mm. Mega City 1, they recycled the bodies for food. They're basically solid greening them and it's all above board and everybody knows about it. And he begs for her to be buried, which is something only the richest people can afford. You have to pay the Justice Department a lot of money. Yeah. And Dredd decides to let him do it. And when, when people say, that's not a law, he's saying, I make the law here. And he'll do it, and you won't say any shit to me about it. Yeah. That's a big moment. And that you could only get to that big moment by building up the other Dredd. The Dredd who would say no to that over, tw- over the last 20 years before that one. Yeah. Okay, whew. That's, uh, that's a lot of dread talk even for me. Ode to dread. Yeah. Sean, I think we'll just finish. You know what? Just tell the listeners, our dear listeners, <laughs> your favorite 2000 AD story. If, they, if you had sure. to recommend them to read one, what would it be? I'm going to expand that with your permission and not yep. make it one. I'd say let's go for top five. Okay, okay. You, you go right. for it. So, my top five picks, uh, and I am going to alternate here between long-running series and shorter done-in-ones, just so that you can get sort of a taste of both. So, um, top five would be, obviously, Nikolai Dante. Yes, it comes in 11 trade paperbacks. Very long. We're talking hundreds, if not thousands of pages. But it is a fantastic science fiction epic. And it also has... Admittedly, to a more limited extent, because it did, after all, end. But it does have, similar to Dread, that idea of an organic setting that changes over time. People grow up. People change. You get to see the passing of time and the influence that it has on the characters and on the world around them. Uh, on top of it being just like a fun swashbuckler sci-fi war epic. Uh, I would also recommend... Well, this one's a little trickier. Uh, I would recommend Necronauts. Necronauts is a story by Gordon Rennie and Fraser Irving. I'm pretty sure it's available on trade paperback. It's which... uh, now part of a double. They have like two stories in one. It's it's called 2000 AD All Star Horror or something like that. Okay, what what is it paired with? 
I I don't remember something by probably Leviathan. I no 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 something short something short by uh, what's his name the guy. The, uh, John Smith, John Smith, the oh. guy with the writer with the most generic name in all of in all of comicdom, John Smith. Yeah, and he's not oh. a generic writer. He's a very no. generic writer. <laughs> he's the guy who came up with uh, with Indigo Prime. Yeah, and Devlin Wall. Yeah. So uh, the thing about Necronauts, though, is it it's very atypical for a 2080 story. It's about uh, Houdini, Lovecraft. Charles Fort and Arthur Conan Doyle teaming up to fight Cthulhu cultists, essentially. And it's set in the 1920s. It's really... It's not a science fiction story at all. I think it, it came out during a point in time when Rennie specifically was dealing in a lot more supernatural issues and sort of horror and getting away i think from the mission statement of 2080 but still putting out really good works so that's sort of a good done in one uh another uh slightly longer series that well obviously zenith Mm -hmm. right four books but still just tremendous to read uh i would also recommend well obviously the ballad of halo jones since i talked it up so much oh yeah yeah And thinking here in terms of comparison, so there's a bit of a trick here. I would recommend Peter Milligan and Brett Ewan's uh, um, Bad Company Mm -hmm. as a really good war story. But if you pick up the complete collection, stop after book three. Because what happens is there are technically five volumes that tend to be collected together as the complete Bad Company. And the first three are tremendous. They are epic, they are fantastic, but they will also, as soon as book four starts, it's just straight downhill. Because it was a couple of years later, and Milligan was trying to do the thing that not a lot of writers in 2000 AD or in general can pull off, which is reopen a door that you have closed. You know what I mean? Bad Company at the end of the third book ends in a very decisive and clear way. And then he had to sort of try and tease open some plot threads in order to reinitiate the storyline. And it didn't really work out. Okay. Uh, Okay. So I'm going to do five. And some of yours would have been in mine, but I'm going to pick something else simply so we don't overlap. Mm. Okay. I'm going to start with Strontium Dog Rage. Which is the big uh, angry vengeance storyline where somebody kills Johnny, Johnny Alpha's best friend, and he just goes out across the universe and murders folks. Yeah. And it's just straight up brutal storytelling. Uh, you should probably read several ships before this simply to get acquainted with the characters before they kill him. Because otherwise I did start it's just... with, like, they have the, the agency files, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's so agency start... file number three, I believe. So I would say start with book two, just because that has a portrait of a mutant. Yeah, but, but I don't want to do all of them. It's it's too long. Uh, Rage <laughs> is re- Rage is really the best. Rage is just super brutal, fun murder action. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, next one is a short one by Paul Cornell and the Israeli, which I just read recently. Uh, it's called Extinct, but it's spelled X-T-N-C-T. Mm-hmm. And it's about a bunch of cloned cyborg dinosaurs uh, being made by a scientist to kill the remains of humanity because at this point humanity is just about 2,000 people 
and they decide instead to be part of his army to take over and re- kill us all, just destroy all of humanity. And it, has, mm-hmm, and it is one of my favorite lines in all of fiction, which, oh, I'm a lesbian dinosaur, who knew? <laughs> it's, a really, it's a really short story. It's about 64 pages. I, unfortunately, I don't think it's in trade anymore, so you'll have to get it via digital. Mm-hmm. But it's really, it's a fun, it's funny, it's brutal as all hell. It's got great Israeli art. And number three is My Boy, which you look like, Zombo by Al Ewing and Henry Flynn. <laughs> it's such an odd ball of a story. Like, it starts with a bunch of human survivors on a death planet, a planet engineered only to murder people. And they discover that their cargo on their ship is a zombie called Zombo, who's this big lug of an idiot who wants to eat people, but he can't because he's supposed to save them. He has this chip in his brain that doesn't allow him to murder us. And it gets weird and super weird. There's like living planets and there's Kirby-esque cosmic thumb battles. And there's an uh, alien group of Beatles-esque uh, musicians who can save the galaxy. But they keep on fighting each other. Like physically beat up each other as they try to save us all. And <laughs> Zombo, it turns out, has an alternate personality in his butt. <laughs> which, is activa- which is activated when somebody blows his head and he spends like one third of the story with his head blown up literally talking out of his ass oh my god <laughs> it's amazingly ridiculous funny and fun story and it's and a really strangely positive notes like yeah. it's, a, it's a very optimistic story uh, I did three right yeah but you can um, do two more No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, number four, I'm going to do two judgment stories. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them is Trifecta. And Trifecta is a long, long list of creators. It's L. Ewing, Rob Williams, Cy Sperrier, uh, Fraser Irving, Simon Colby, Henry Flint, and the Israeli. And the idea is that they're, it takes the three uh, main Judge Red strips at the time. The Simping Detective... And uh, Mega City Underground, which are two spin-offs and the main judge red strip. And they do this sort of secret crossover where each of the main characters is works on its own mystery. And, and at first the readers didn't know it was supposed to be connected. And at a certain point the strips start to bleed into one another. Mm. So it's this nice big splash of the whole the judge red universe in one trade. Now, it does lose some of the impacts in reprints because you already know the stories are connected. In the actual magazine, when they published them, you didn't know. They never publicized it. They just said those free strips, each doing its own thing. And then one story is Judge Red kicking down the door. And then the next story starts, the simping detective. And it's him. It's Jack Point, the characters of that strip, on the other side of that door, running away from Dredd. Hmm. Imagine how, you know, Marvel not produ- producing a crossover and not telling anybody until it's actually done. They would, never dare, it, they would never dare to do that. Yeah. And the last one is America, which is... It's not my personal favorite Judge Red Strip, but it's my personal favorite in terms of story that you can read on itself. And it's actually... It's a collection of free stories, all united by being written by John Wagner and drawn by Colin McNeil that takes place over almost a decade. Like, it's almost a decade worth of stories. And they're all about Dredd serving at first as this distant figure of authority as the human characters, the actual citizens of the city, get to be in the main role. 
and him slowly realizing what his policies actually mean to real people and not no longer being able to distance himself from the results of his murderous actions. Uh, so that's my top five, and there, there's been many more yeah, that I could name, but really, <laughs> Same. really, um, I just got into it recently, and it's still a young man's infatuation at this point, me in 2018, but I think it's going to stay on like the magazine itself for a long, long time. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, what it would offer for readers who have not read it before, right, who are just hearing about it for the first time from us is considering that we have spent so much time talking about how great it is that image produces American science fiction in such a consistent way and with all of these different high concepts, take into account that 2000 AD has been doing that for 40 years and that they have a stable of creators who have not really had that kind of decline or deterioration over time. They're still putting out really, really good stuff even today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, granted, finding a jumping on point is complicated if you want to actually read the prog. The uh, no, 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 no. They're doing comic. it every, every half year. They have this special magazine, which is designed to be all new serials. Like, it's not going to be new characters, but it is well, all number one chapters of a, of a story. Of a story, but that chapter could be book three of an ongoing series. Well, it's That's what it's I'm designed saying. to be a jumping on point, and I guess it mostly I, succeeds. I guess uh, they have an excellent trade program, including for digital readers. They have like a whole uh, catalog of trade paperbacks that are digital, uh, convenient to purchase, convenient to read. Um, just a treasure trove of classic and modern science fiction uh, that. To their credit, and I, I do give them a lot of credit for this, have avoided a lot of the pitfalls of the mainstream. They did fall for the Mark Miller trap, but that was 20 years ago. I feel like we can forgive them for That's that. That's like the anti-life equation, right? The Mark Miller has you in its trap. There is yeah. no escape, Mr. Miracle. You know, like Yoda, once you go down that dark mm-hmm. path forever, will it dominate your destiny? Except they, they did shake him off at some point. Okay, so this was uh, the Smorgasbord episode 71. Like I said, yes. we're doing the countdown. So this is five to destruction, as it were. <laughs> if you like this podcast, you can donate to us via Seaport Patreon. If you want to talk to us, I am on Twitter, at Tom Shops. You can talk to me there. And if you enjoy our voices, Sean has another podcast, right? I do. I run a gaming review podcast called Games of Future Past with my co-host Boris. Uh, we're on SoundCloud, iTunes, the usual suspects. So, that was that. I'm Tom Shapiro. And I'm Sean Edry. Until next time, Zarjaz.